You make software. We're here to help you do it better. I'm Mark Littlewood. You're listening to the Business of Software podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Today, we're listening to Rita Gunter-McGrath, Professor of Business at Columbia, and one of the smartest thinkers on innovation on the planet, and that's official. She's talking about the end of competitive advantage, that thing that companies were told to strive for over and over. But the world has changed, markets have moved on, and in a rapidly moving, fast-paced environment, what can you do to stay on top? Rita knows, and she's got some great advice. Enjoy. Morning. It's a real pleasure to be here, and I'm learning so much every minute that I'm here. I feel as though it opens a window for me on a, on a new world. And uh, thank you, Mark, for your very kind um, invitation. Um, the topic that Mark asked me to talk about is what's featured in the book that you've all gotten in your packets, and the book is called *The End of Competitive Advantage*, and it was motivated by a deep unease that I was feeling about my colleagues in the field of strategy. And in strategy for years and years and years, the holy grail, uh, the thing that you want, the thing that everybody lusts after, is a sustainable competitive advantage. And the concept is you do an innovation, you get something in place in the market, and then you've got a huge long period of uh, exploitation to follow. And, and, and that's great, right? That's a good thing. But what I'm finding in more and more parts of the economy, and certainly the parts of the economy that you folks live in, um, that doesn't exist. That what we have instead are transient or temporary advantages. And that has pluses and it has minuses, uh, but it certainly provokes a different way of thinking than we would have thought in traditional strategy. So I thought to introduce the topic, maybe I would just tell a, a story. Uh, the story involves two photography companies, a couple of oil and gas billionaires, and events that unfolded over about 20 years. So the two chemical-based photography companies were Fujifilm of Japan and Kodak of the United States. Uh, and they were both in, say, 1970, roughly equivalent players. They both had great global brands, fantastic technology, lots of patents, lots of things to their names. Uh, and, uh, and, and they were both competing head to head. Well, in 1973, these two Texan oil and gas billionaires, the Hunt brothers, uh, decided to try to hedge their positions in oil and gas by going into the purchasing of silver. They were literally buying up bars of silver. And when this all started in 1973, uh, an ounce of silver cost about 50 cents. By the time this plot came to light in 1979, the price of an ounce of silver had gone up to nearly $50 an ounce. And worse than that, the Hunt brothers reportedly controlled half the world's supply. So if you're an executive at a photography company, imagine the consternation, right? Not only is this raw material you depend on so much more expensive than you'd expected, but you may not even be able to get a hold of enough of it to keep your factories going. Well, the whole thing fell apart after about four months after it came to light. In March of 1980, um, the price of silver dropped back to normal, supplies freed up, uh, the Hunt brothers went bankrupt, and all the photography company executives, except one, said, thank God that's over, back to business as usual. The one that didn't was a guy named Minoru Onishi. He was fairly new in his role as the CEO of Fuji, and this experience rattled him. He said, you know, if it happened once, it could happen again. We are, we are vulnerable to being um, at, at the mercy of forces beyond our control. In 1984, an event occurred which crystallized his unease, and that was the introduction by Sony of the very first consumer-facing all-digital camera, the Mavica. A camera that could take pictures without film. No chemicals, no post-production, all digital. And Onishi was reported afterwards as having said that was it. His resolve crystallized, and he said, we're going to uh, uh, change. We, we, we see the future, and chemical-based photography is not where the future lies for us. And so what he began to do was systematically extract uh, from the company, extracting resources out of chemical-based photography, put resources into digital, into other industries. He diversified beyond photography altogether. Um, and, and it was a big, big change over a long period of time. Today, Fuji employs over 80,000 people. Its revenues last year were $27 billion. It's number 400 on Fortune's list of the top 1,000 firms. 
Kodak literally blowing up its factories because it can't afford to pay the real estate taxes on them. Now, the reason I think this is such an interesting story is the two firms really were quite equivalent when they started. Uh, you know, they both had great technology, they both had great um, patents, they both had uh, strong positions of, of intellectual property. Um, what made the difference was leaders who were willing to see that the world had changed and make decisions accordingly. And so the end of Competitive Advantage, the book, is really written to try to provide some insight into how organizations that are thriving in this environment manage to do it. And I call it a new playbook for strategy. It's, it's really a different way of thinking about how we compete and how we engage. And I think one of the first departures of this way of thinking about strategy from conventional strategy is the whole concept of industry is kind of up for grabs. You know, when I started in the, the field of strategy, uh, all the really, you know, sophisticated people were doing very in-depth industry analysis. So you did, you know, market share comparisons and who was more aggressive and who had which position. Um, today, the most significant competition many of us will face doesn't come from within our industry. It's some other industry coming in and engulfing and devouring some space we want. For example, last year, the Wall Street Journal published a study comparing American household spending um, over the five years since the introduction of the iPhone. What did they find? Five years since the introduction of Android, iPhone, that whole ecosystem, spending on telecommunications by the average American household up 11%. What went down? Spending on restaurants, spending on apparel, spending on travel, spending on cars. So if you're a car maker and you're sort of benchmarking yourself against other car makers, you've missed the plot completely. And I think most industries are up against this, what I call, oblique competition. So you really have to be much broader in the way that you think about it. And I've uh, identified a concept I call competing in arenas, where an arena is a, a pot of addressable resource that very many players from different industry segments might well be contesting. And I think we need to think about our arenas quite uh, differently. So other pieces of the, what I call the new playbook for strategy. Um, the first one is continuous reconfiguration, continuous reconfiguration or transformation. Um, and I, I learned this by studying a small group of very rare firms that were able to grow steadily over a whole 10-year period. So out of nearly 5,000 firms I studied, there were 10 of them that managed to kind of achieve steady, predictable growth in spite of massive swings in the market and, and, and so forth. And I tortured my graduate students for an entire summer. I said, okay, I want to see how these guys handle setbacks. I want to see the layoffs. I want to see the downsizings. Show me the restructurings. And they came back with, like, nothing. What these guys did was continually adjust. And so over time, the change was substantial. But um, you know, each, at any particular moment, you didn't see a big wrenching change. So uh, one from your industry is a company based in Connecticut called FactSet Systems. And they started in the 1970s with literally selling documents they called the fact set to institutional buyers. These was financial information. Today, they're in their own databases. They've got stuff in the cloud. They've got I mean, an amazing amount of things that are different than when they started. But you'd never see a huge, major wrenching change. They're constantly moving moving resources in a very fluid way. And I think that's something that we have to learn. Uh, in many, many organizations, resources kind of get trapped. And then you require change management uh, to, to, to move them, right? I almost think by the time you need change management, you've probably left it too late. So I think uh, a big difference between traditional strategy and, and the newer ways of thinking about it are this notion of continual motion. Second thing is what I call healthy disengagement. So if you think about the life cycle of a competitive advantage, you've got it getting started, the innovation part. You've got the exploitation part when you get to enjoy it. But what happens when it goes away? Physical phone books, dial-up internet, copper wires, you know, you name it. Eventually, you're going to have to get resources out of those areas and get yourself into something new. And so in the companies that get this right, disengagement is not seen as this horrific, oh my god, the world is ending kind of thing. It's seen as the natural evolution of your set of competitive advantage. And people deal with it very positively. So healthy disengagement. And not very many companies get this right. So if I go to a corporate, a big one especially, and I say things like, tell me about your capital budgeting process, there'll be a process, you know, there'll be forms you have to fill out and stuff. If I go to that same company and I say, tell me about your disengagement process, I kind of get back, huh? Uh, people don't think about it. So how do we disengage from areas where the opportunity is exhausted? A parallel idea to that is what I call deft resource allocation. 
And this is a big deal. So um, imagine to yourself that you're the head of the Walkman business at Sony in its prime. You know? And what got you where you are? AA batteries and little whirring gizmos that take albums with content and reproduce them with enormous fidelity. And that's what you know, got you where you are. And some bright spark comes along and says, guess what? In the future, no more AA batteries. No more whirring gizmos. No, it's all solid state. In fact, no more albums. It's going to be songs, and they go through the air. And I want you to take money out of your marketing budget and your capital budget and your development budget and put it into this new stuff. What's your reaction likely to be? You know, it's not a career-enhancing strategy for the young person pr promoting this idea. Um, when resources are controlled by the people in the organization that have a lot of power, that creates an enormous vulnerability because their instinct will be to defend and protect and preserve that advantage long perhaps past the time when it's still healthy and when you can really rescue it. A beautiful example that's playing out right now is um, the people over at BlackBerry. I mean, how many millions have they put into trying desperately to sort of cling on to some kind of relevance in the market when if they really wanted to do this new strategy of you know, providing security and software and, and back office stuff, they would have been much farther ahead had they disengaged from the handset business uh, earlier or downsized it, you know, downscoped it. Um, innovation. If you buy the idea that increasingly organizations are going to be opportunistically looking for the next generation advantage, then your innovation process has to be an ongoing and systematic thing. In far too many organizations, innovation is kind of what I'll call episodic. So some important guy gets up and says, damn it, we need more innovation around here. You, 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 go form a skunk works, you know? And this goes fine for 18 months or two years until that person moves on or the world changes and then it all goes away again, only to reemerge from the ashes, you know, some 12 months later. It's on again, off again. It's episodic. Instead, what I believe is that companies that get good at this rapidly changing competitive environment are going to have innovation as a systematic capability. There's going to be jobs for people to do it. There's going to be a budget. There's going to be uh, practices and processes for, for how to do it. In other words, it'll be as routine and systematic as your quality process, your design process, you know, anything else that's really uh, important. And uh, I think that's something we could stand to do a lot better at. The other thing that drives me nuts about innovation, I've never understood this, so thank you, Mark, um, is you know, you would never take someone who's never written a line of software code and ask them to do your, you know, quality testing. And yet when it comes to innovation, companies all the time sort of invent it from scratch. You know, we know a lot about what allows this to work. So my recommendation is people could get a lot smarter than, than they typically, typically are. Leadership. Increasingly, I think leadership is going to go from proving you were right and making your numbers and targeting things to what I'll call much more discovery-driven in, in your mindset. So people are going to be open to new ideas. They're going to be open to things that might surprise them. They're going to be open to new data. And increasingly, strategy is not about accomplishing what you set out to accomplish. It's going to be learning as you go learning what you need to learn to the next milestone, and then being prepared to redirect and move as you go. So it's a much more discovery-driven approach than we classically have thought about leadership. And finally, I think, um, and I'm speaking to the choir here, but all of our careers are going to be much more entrepreneurial than perhaps we had been taught when we were in college. Uh, I think increasingly it's going to be not just a career, it's going to be a whole series of gigs and, and things that are different. Uh, I'll tell a story that to me brings this to light. I was, um, a friend of mine has a consulting firm, a fairly large one, and they gave one of their um, younger analysts, a woman in her 20s, this task to do. I think it was size of market. And she, uh, they knew from personal experience that this was probably going to take her about two months. She comes back in a week and it's done. And they're astonished. They're like, how did you do this? What made, what made you do this so efficiently? And she says, oh, well, you know, I called my friend and he works for this other company and he's really good at statistical analysis. And I called my other friend and she's really great at like defining markets. She'd assembled this virtual team of 10 people across all kinds of different organizations and each of them pooled their talent to get this task done. That network that she's got is probably going to be more enduring than any firm she'll ever work for. And that's where her loyalty lies, and that's where she's going to be planning on getting the results that she needs. So, you know, I think people are increasingly looking at their careers in a really different way than we've 
sort of been taught, or certainly than, than I was taught when I was in, uh, in school. So a new playbook um, for strategy. And as I said, one of the big differences is what it means for individuals. If you look at the, the left-hand side, right, that's the classic gray flannel suit world, right? So you've got a career, it moves in ladders, and uh, it's stable, and you do a lot of work in hierarchies, versus increasingly what I'm seeing is careers are being managed almost the way people who make movies manage, right? So you want to make a movie, you bring together the skills for the product project. When the movie's done, everybody moves on, but they've learned a skill. They've learned something useful, and that then helps them get the next gig, and the next gig, and the next gig. And so I think a lot of parts of our economy are going that way. We're going to be really thinking about doing uh, careers differently. And I think that has big implications for how you deal with your talent. How do you incent them? People often ask me, oh, you know, I can't, we're having a terrible time recruiting millennials. And I'm like, yeah, you know, if you want to recruit millennials, they're going to have to believe that they're more employable when you're done with them than they were when they joined. So I think it's a different mindset. It really leads us to a different uh, a way of thinking. So um, uh, normally this is my corporate talk and I, I you know, freak all these people from big companies out and then we talk a little bit about what you do. But uh, given the audience here, I thought it would be a lot of fun to talk about the entrepreneurial side of this because I think a lot of this is really good news for smaller businesses, for people that want to be the disruptor. So I thought I'd spend a few minutes thinking about what, you know, if I were, if I were to take the other side of this, right? If I were to go after uh, BlackBerry or go after an IBM or go after you know, a firm like that, what would I do? And so I thought a recipe for disruption, and then we'll have time for some questions. So um, step one, find an attractive target. You know, rich, they haven't been challenged for a long, long time, there's a lot of money there, and the only thing that's keeping them there is not that their customers are absolutely delighted, because they don't have customers, they have hostages. <laughs> That's, that's what you want. You want to you find an attractive target like that. Um, especially attractive if the people in charge haven't been challenged for a long time, if the business model has remained pretty much the same, and if the management sort of uses these two phrases, right? Don't bring me any surprises. Don't bring me any surprises. Well, you know, if someone in a leadership position tells their people to not bring them surprises, guess what? Nobody brings them surprises until it's way too late. Second phrase you want to watch out for and that you want to look at in your target is don't bring me a problem unless you have a solution. That virtually guarantees that nobody at a senior level is going to really hear the most important difficulties facing your firm until, again, it's very, very late. So in an ideal world, your target will be managed by people like this. That's what you want. You kind of, kind of asleep at the wheel, right? Um, then you want to think about, well, okay, what, what is it that these customers, hostages, need? And can we come up with a different way of getting that um, job met? I know later today you're going to be hearing about jobs to be done, so this is very complementary with, with that approach. But um, you know, are, can you meet the same need that the incumbent needs, but do it with a twist? Can you make what they provide unnecessary? Interesting thought. Can you do the same thing, but at a fraction of the price? Uh, can you meet the customer need that's not being met in a, in a, in a cost-effective way? Um, could the customer be incented to reward you for making their experience better? So some questions you can ask yourself, some trigger questions to think about when you're looking at this opportunity. So in the case of payments, here's a prototypical customer slash hostage. Uh, this is a woman who owns the small bookshop in New York City. She's been at it for 35 years. But as we have increasingly moved away from paying cash for things, and started to put everything on either debit or credit cards, her interchange fees are going through the roof. And it's actually causing a significant business problem for her. So she's caught, right? Because on the one hand, she doesn't want to lose the business she would lose if she insisted her customers pay cash. On the other hand, these interchange fees are starting to add up. It's, it's really creating some business difficulties for her. And so what does she do? Where does she turn for a solution? Um, this is the last year I was able to get uh, data for, but, but in, in 2008, yeah, U.S. banks were making um, $45.3 billion in interchange fees, and that's a lot of money. Um, today, it's closer to $55 billion. I mean, it's gone up a lot since 2008. That's a lot of money. And you have to ask yourself, so what exactly is the value that's being created, you know? Hostage, right? Uh, I, can't, I can't not do business with these guys, and they're frantically trying to pr pr predict their turf. All right, so you've got a target industry or sector 
you've got an unsatisfied customer, now you're going to need a business model. And uh, that's where I'm very fond of the work of people like Alexander Osterwilder and uh, uh, Steve uh, Blank, um, putting together, rather than these endless, awful spreadsheets that you know bore you to death, um, simple business model canvas, saying, here's my, here's my business on one page. And how do I think about the most important and salient elements of my business? And it's great, especially in the early days, because you know it's wrong. <laughs> you, know, you know it's wrong when you start. You have to learn what the business really is. So business model canvas, that's the next piece. Um, so here's an example, and there are many, by the way, many smaller firms tackling this payment space, and you probably are more aware of many than I am, but here's one that I think is really kind of cool. Uh, it's a company called Level Up. Have you heard of Level Up? Anybody? Yeah, okay. Um, they've got a very cool business model. Essentially what they do is you sign up with them, you give them a credit card, and you use your phone to make payments. And what they do is they hold all those payments all day long from hopefully thousands of purchasers, and then they hit the interchange system once. So it basically takes all those transactions that would be charged each time and turns them into a single transaction. So great for the customers, great for um, the, the, the company because they take a small proportion from the merchants. They get, they get paid by the merchants. Um, you as the customer don't, don't pay anything for the service. Um, and there are many, many others, right? So there's, there's, um, there's, there's Square, there are other payment systems, there's lots of different uh, ways this is being tackled. But this to me would be a very interesting example of a, a, a large, attractive industry that could be uh, very much disrupted. Um, so when I think about the transient advantage economy, people often ask me, you know, well, is there any good news in this, right? Because companies, Kodak, RIM, Nokia, Sony, you know, you name it, these very famous companies all kind of falling on hard times. Uh, doesn't this sound kind of like a recipe for, for bad news? And I'd like to um, close my formal remarks with, with some observations that I hope will give you a sense of optimism. The first thing is, yes, those large organizations struggle to hold on to their positions, but that opens up incredible opportunities for smaller firms, for firms that uh, once wouldn't, wouldn't have been able to uh, co effectively compete. Because one of the other things we're seeing now in this transient advantage economy is increasingly its access to assets not ownership of assets, which people are using to create competitive business models. So, you know, you can get your computing power from Amazon, you can get your programmers from Odesk, you can get your office space from Regis. You can start up much more cheaply at scale than you ever have been able to do before. And a bit like uh, Mark's comment about the, the greeting card, right? You can do things now as a small firm that you would have had to be a ginormous firm even 20 years ago to be able to accomplish. So I think that's a, a huge place where entrepreneurs can thrive. The other thing that I think is really hopeful is, and I don't think we're here yet, but I think we're getting there, uh, is an, an economic context in which people can take different paths through their careers so let's say you need to step out for a while. You want to go climb Mount Everest or look after a family or do something that you're passionate about, like study art. Um, as long as you keep your skills upgraded, as long as you maintain the networks you build at conferences like this one, I think we're moving towards a world where you'll be able to step out and you'll be able to come back in. And I think that's going to create a lot more flexibility in our workforce with potentially really uh, rewarding con context for how we, uh, how we spend our lives. So that's really all I had prepared in terms of formal remarks. Now, I can go on all day, but I thought it might be nice to get some interaction as we begin our, our conference. So um, questions? Do you, do you want a mic? Do they need to use a mic? Uh, they do, but first of all... Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. We've got Mike's question here. Chuck it. This is where your staff get their exercise, right? I know. <laughs> Put some money. There you go. Thanks very much, Rita. Um, at the beginning, you talked about the idea of oblique competition. Uh, your examples were all companies who made things. Um, does, do you think it equally applies to services-based companies as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, in fact, services are even more vulnerable because if you think about it, how many ways um, can you fulfill a need in a service? You know, you think about your pricing models, right? You could sell what you do by time. You could sell what you do by subscription. You could sell what you do by seeds. You could sell what you do by out output. So as you start to multiply the kind of business models that are economically feasible, which is even more likely in a, in a service business, uh, you start to get into these oblique competitors in a much bigger way. So absolutely. Uh, how can you scale a gig economy? 
How can you scale? A gig, if we're transitioning, basically doing a series of gigs as part uh, of our career growth, can that scale, or does that mean basically death of uh, growth? Well, um, see, I don't think everybody's going to be doing gigs. Um, I think what you'll find is there'll be companies that create kind of a two-track system. So there'll be, there'll be the core participants in the organization that are going to be the permanent employees, that are going to be the glue that holds it all together. And in fact, it's, it's quite interesting. The companies that I studied, the ones I told you about, the 10 out of nearly 5,000 that had managed steady growth, what you find there is very interesting. It's very stable. Things. So very stable values, huge investments in training and development, huge investments in culture, in their, their belief systems, in training, development, and that kind of thing. At the same time, huge dynamism in people's roles, where they move, how they compete. Um, and I think the companies that get this right, increasingly what you're going to see is this combination of stability on the one hand and dynamism on the other. And they're able to figure out how to put them together. But this is 10 out of nearly 5,000. So I think we still have a lot to learn about how do we d understand what stays stable and how do we understand where it is more gigs and more projects. Now, if you, if you take a big step back and think about companies that operate this way as a matter of course, look at the big consulting firms. You know, look at Accenture, look at um, Infosys, look at Cognizant, look at some of those big firms. They're doing it at scale, but everybody in the company is essentially doing gigs. You know, they, 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 they get a project, they do the project, they roll off that project, they get the next project. So what you have is you have this core team that provides the glue and keeps things together and a lot of flexibility in the rest of the firm. So I think it's a fascinating question and, and, and one that a lot of companies haven't figured out yet. Um, I, I'd just like to uh, understand something. I'm right here. Oh, well, hello. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, evidently, what you're, I, I love your framework. Okay. Uh, evidently, what you're talking about is a sustainable competitive advantage comes not through products, but from the ability to learn and adapt. Uh, yes, very much so. And, and so the question is, what happens to these dinosauric firms that are in the Fortune 500? Uh, it seems that they have all the characteristics that you're talking about and they, they sow the seeds for failure. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you, you have this other force at work, the gig economy, uh -huh. which I think is a great term. Uh -huh. and, and that basically destroys uh, worldwide economies, which are based on huge scale, right. large companies, coordinated action and stuff. Well, what's the future of big companies? The well, future of big companies? Well, I think the smart ones are going to figure this out. So my, um, my, my study, the, the 10 companies I was telling you about, they're, I call them the growth outliers. And I'll, let me say a word about how that study was done, just so you get it in context. So what I did was I took um, every publicly traded firm on the planet, uh, so every, every exchange, so not just US, all over the world, with a market capitalization of a billion dollars or more, and asked a simple question, how many of them were able to grow revenue or, and or net income by 5% a year steadily, year over year, in the five years ending in 2009. And I found that 8%, uh, so of the companies were able to do it for revenue, 4% for net income. So flipping that around, 92% of the firms were not able to grow steadily during that period. And then I thought, well, maybe I'm not being fair, right? The period ending in 2009 was the result of massive global trauma and you know, all that. So I said, let's take it the previous five years. Numbers were a little better, if memory serves me, 11% and 7%. But the vast minority of firms were able to do this thing that Wall Street says it wants, right? Steady, predictable, quarter by quarter growth. It's, it's, it's a myth. It doesn't really exist. So then I took the whole 10-year period. And I said, all right, let's see if any firm is able to grow steadily. I picked net income as my metric over the whole 10-year period. And that's where I found the 10 firms that I mentioned. Um, and what's interesting about them is that many of them are quite big. So ACS of Spain, Infosys, Cognizant, uh, Indra Systems, Indra Systemis of, of, again, of Spain. Um, HDFC Bank. I mean, these are big, big companies, but they've figured out this combination of stability and dynamism. So I don't think this is widespread yet. And one of the reasons I don't think it's widespread yet is companies are still being managed with very traditional ways of thinking about strategy. You know, So they have an annual budgeting process and they have a five-year planning cycle and people are rewarded for making their numbers and the quarter-by-quarter -quarter predictability is what we want and change is something we do ep episodically, right? So things go crazy, then they straighten out, then we have a long period of stability and then things go crazy. I think this quest for sustainable advantage puts all the wrong reflexes in. So when you ask what the future is for big companies, I think we're going to see maybe three different outcomes. 
One, it's going to be a company that has to go through a crisis before it makes the necessary changes. Second are going to be companies like these that figure it out and adjust all along so that they don't have the crisis. And the third are going to be companies that really proactively go out and make the necessary changes that they need to make uh, in an ongoing way. And I think, I think we'll start to see those things beginning to, um, beginning to take place. I think we're really early days yet in this recognition that the transient advantage economy is going to require very different strategy frameworks, very different ways of planning, different metrics for success. You know, in a, in a transient advantage context, I could see you trying four or five different projects, only one of which can succeed because you don't know when you start off which one it's going to be. You'd never do that with conventional discounted cash flow type analysis, right? You'd do something completely different. So I think that's what, I think we're early days. I think if we were having this conference 10 years from now, we'd have a lot more examples of companies who are getting this right. And I think that's optimistic. Okay, where am I going? Over there, okay. Uh, Danny. I guess I don't. Um, my question, the, about the example of uh, Fuji and Kodak, are there counterexamples um, that illustrate that perhaps doubling down on what you actually do is the right thing to do? And then I guess along with that, are there um, attributes you could look for in large industries that would say, do not, like, do not go against this you know, entrenched competitor? Uh -huh. um, like, are, uh, kind of counterexamples to what you sure. mentioned. Sure. Well, the, the most famous counterexample to the Fuji case uh, would probably be Xerox, right? I mean, their leadership team had this passionate belief in the office of the future, and they, you know, seeded the the the, 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 yeah, the baseline for what is a lot of what we work with in technology today out in the Palo Alto Research Center. Uh, that organization spawned you know, dozens of, of new companies that came out of it, but Xerox, the company, could not get out of its own way. And so there's a case where I think um, they, they got themselves into deep, dark trouble, and then they did double down on what they do, well, just workflows and work processes, and that, 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 that's what ultimately dug, dug them out of that hole. Uh, we'll see how long that lasts, but that would be an example of a company that had a vision, but just could not get it through the organization. Um, and then your other question was, what, how do you decide that this is just not a fight worth winning, or this is not a fight you're going to be able to win? Anytime you're up against a situation where the, a government has to do something, do not count on governments doing anything uh, to, to free you up. Uh, <laughs> anytime you're in a situation where you're, you're tackling someone that's part of a really entrenched system, you know, where there's perhaps first mover advantages or network effects, where you're going to have to dislodge the whole ecosystem to, to get a toehold. That's usually not very good. Um, you also want to be very careful of situations in which there are lots of advocacy groups um, or where your success requires that someone actually get off their duff and do something differently. I think those are all warning signs to me that you're going to have a much harder time uh, winning in those kinds of environments. So ideally what you want is a place where people either aren't paying attention or it's a problem that hasn't been solved yet or you've got a small group of customers that aren't really relevant to a large organization but that's your toehold and that's where you get going and then you can work your way uh, into something that's richer. So, you know, there, there are things I would look for to say, you know, you don't want to be burning through cash waiting for certain kinds of changes to take place. Was there another question over here? Sorry. Oh, yeah. over here. Okay. Uh, hello. I was, hello. I was wondering if you think your numbers would have been different if you looked at privately owned corporations versus public corporations in terms of their ability to innovate much mm -hmm. quicker because they don't have the demands of reporting to the, gov to the marketplace. Yeah. Um, just some comments around that. Is sure. it better to have a private or a public organization for that? Sure. Um, so a couple, a couple of things that I think really, really matter in thinking about what it means to be a public organization. Um, you remember I talked about the life cycle of a competitive advantage. So you have the beginning part, the innovation part, if you will. Then you have this long period, hopefully, of exploitation. And then you've got the disengagement. The innovation part tends to be funded by uh, either corporate venture capital arms, venture capitalists, you know, R&D people, seed money kind of things. The exploitation part, that period of stability in between the creation of new advantages, the public markets are pretty good at that. That's the quarter by quarter, that's the analysts, I know what your key metrics are, so if you're an airline, it's cost per passenger seat mile flown, if you're retail, it's how much did you get in your square footage, and we're very careful about understanding all those metrics. Now, once you have a business that's in erosion, that's where the advantage is going away, 
It is murder to be a publicly traded firm. Look at Michael Dell. He's desperately trying to take his firm out of that spotlight so that he can make the tough changes he needs to make to get that baby back on its feet. Um, I'm, one of my clients is a company called Allianz Boots, and those of you from the UK will know Boots. Um, well, they got, they got merged with Allianz Unichem um, about four years ago, five years ago, and the billionaire who runs this enterprise kind of took a look at what was going on. He said, I can't do what I need to do as a public company. So he partnered with KKR, took them private, and they're busy now doing the restructuring to get them uh, back up to health again. So the first observation I would make is anytime you've got to do really big changes or where you've got to have a different business model and you've got to retrain all your analysts, it's murder being a public company. It really is. It's very hard to do. So I think private companies, when they're run well, uh, have the luxury of longer time horizons. They have the luxury of more flexibility. They can choose whether this year is not going to be such a profitable year because we're putting the money into something that's new. They, they can manage those things much, um, with much less public attention and glare than a public firm can. So I think when they're run well, they have the potential to be run for the long term in a more effective way. Now, a lot of private companies are not run very well. <laughs> those of you who've worked in some will know what I mean, right? Every decision is, is, is you know, this is calling Mr. Smith. Mr. Smith wants it this way, and that's how it's going to go. You know, so I'm not saying being private is like the ultimate goal for for large organizations. I do think it gives you some attractive alternatives to the way public companies sort of force their their leadership to behave. Is that? Where are we going now? Over here? Maybe something there? Hi, my question is: right. If you're in a company where you think that you're you're reaching that end. Oh, okay. What are the what are the um, what are the warning signs? If you're too close to the forest to see yeah. the trees, what yeah. what are you looking for? There's actually a couple of diagnoses in the book, which I know you've all got, so you can look at that afterwards. But a couple of couple of very distinct early warnings. Okay, um, I'm putting more money in, or I'm putting the same amount in, and I'm not getting back. Sales are sluggish, slow. You know, not 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 dropping off the field, but but you know, the thing you want to watch out for is you know it hasn't really turned around for 18 months, but success is just around the corner. You know, we we can talk ourselves into it. Um, our own people aren't buying our product. Customers are saying you know something that's simpler or cheaper or not not quite as good quality, but you know it's good enough and therefore I'm not going to pay as much for it. Um, and then the obvious things, you know, pr pressure on your margins, pressure on your penetration, competitors starting to take away share. Um, and the more of those you see, the more urgent the notion to really take a good hard look at it. One of the things that I think is hard when you're really close to it, it's, it's really hard to, to sort of you know, because I mean, it's a human thing too, right? I mean, if this is a project you really believed in at one point, and you said to your friends, your good coworkers, your your colleagues, come with me and change the world. You know, and now you got to go back to them and say, well, you know, that was a fun try, but the world doesn't want to be changed. It's hard. It's hard at a human level. So I think it it's really helpful sometimes to have a third party come in and have a look at it. So that's where you could use your peers here in this in this network to help you with that. You know, have a look at it. Give me your honest opinion. What do you think? The other thing that I think um, is really difficult is you know you guys are all really busy. You know, there's nobody in this room who couldn't usefully use 20 more hours every day of every week of every year, right? Um, so when you're that busy, what's your vantage point? When do you take the step back and say, I, I really need to do something different about my business? So let me share with you a, a short story about um, a guy who I think sort of exemplifies what we need to be thinking about as leaders. Uh, the guy is Alan Mullally, who's the CEO of Ford. So it's a big company. He had been with Boeing. Ford begged him to come and take the reins at Ford in 2006. And that year, they were on track to lose $6 billion with a B. That's a lot of money. That would pay for a lot of name tags, um, $6 billion. So Ford comes in, um, parks his car in the executive parking garage, looks around, and beholds no Fords in the executive parking garage at the Ford Motor Company. This is not a good sign. <laughs> Your own people are not buying your product. Now, Mullally's a famously detail-oriented manager, and he likes to take all his people, and he gives them metrics that they have to admit, and they're all color-coded. So there's green, you know, which is good, way to go. There's yellow, which is, hmm, maybe we need to pay some attention here. And then there's red, which is, my god, this is a huge problem. So he comes in day one on the job. His management team's all there. They've got their reports in front of them, and it's all green. And he says to his guys, guys, how can we be on track to lose $6 billion and everything's green? How is that possible? 
on for another couple of meetings, and he used a phrase which I thought was just so wonderful. He says, you can't manage a secret. You can't manage a secret. If we can find it, if we can put our names on it, we can fix it. But you can't manage a secret. If you're holding back, we can't get that done. So two, three meetings go by. And finally, this guy named Mike Fieldston, I think his name is. He's actually, this guy is actually um, the, the heir apparent to Mullally now. He lays down his card. He says, all right, all right, I'm red on the launch of some SUV. And the whole room goes totally quiet. They're all kind of looking at him going, so Mike, it was really great knowing you, you know? Because the culture in that company up to that point was you didn't reveal your problems. You didn't let your cards on the table. And kind of back to this notion of how do you know when something's going wrong, if you don't even have the data that would allow you to contemplate the idea, um, you're not going to be able to make the decisions because you can't manage a secret. So Mullally gets up, applauds, applauds, and the whole room kind of relaxes a little. And then what they started to do was work on the problem. So one of the colleagues says, you know, I know you're going to need a couple of this kind of engineer because I had a problem like that three years ago. And another guy says, well, I've got some spare capacity here I could help you with. They started to solve the problems. And, uh, and, and Malel, I interviewed him, and, and he was telling me about this. And he comes back and he says, well, the next meeting, it was a real breakthrough. It was great. The next meeting was terrifying. It was like a bloody rainbow in there. <laughs> I mean, there was just all kinds of problems. But they fixed it. They were able to fix it. And by 2008, when the um, uh, rather unfortunate spectacle of air, air, uh, car companies flying to Washington to look for bailouts was revealed to the world, Ford went along to save their industry to save their supply chain. They didn't need the bailout. They had successfully turned the ship around in that two years. So I think that's an exemplary story of how leaders can make such a difference, right? If you're not even allowed to discuss what the problems really are, they're likely to stay hidden somewhere in the far crevices of your organization until they become so big and ugly that, that you have to pay attention to them. So I think having the, the conversation, having the ability to make those kinds of uh, judgments is, is really important, get that data. I don't, back, here, there, okay. Hi, I uh, appreciate the talk. I was wondering if you could comment uh, for a minute about data, and I don't exactly mean big data, but I'm thinking of companies like uh, Facebook with the social graph, Google with their web page index, and you know these companies seem to have hit a, an escape velocity where um, the idea of competing directly with them or even disrupting them on those dimensions is absurd, so now companies, startups go from saying, uh, we're going to be the next Facebook to saying we're going to be acquired by Facebook. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and, and, when, and when language changes like that, you uh -huh. know, Facebook knows they've won and they can just gobble up, you know, Aquahire, all the companies that would even think of doing such a thing. So uh -huh. would you say that those data uh, advantages are also transient? Um, well, uh, what happened to Bebo? What happened to MySpace? What happened to AOL? Um, I'm not going to say that, that I, think, I think you need to distinguish between data effects and network effects. Um, and network effects are very hard to break through. I mean, once you've got that, that, that ecosystem emerging, um, it's very hard to unseat one member of it. Um, but, you know, if you go back beyond data, right, if you look at television networks, look at cable networks, I mean, they, those have a lot of embedded network effects that tie them to each other, and yet today they're losing ground to all kinds of other things. So I think... If I were advising the people at Facebook, I wouldn't be freaked out. I think you got to, I, I like the hand I'd be dealt, right? But I also wouldn't, you know, be too confident. Things can change, and they often change in ways that are a little bit unexpected. I mean, if I were Facebook, I'd be very worried about the fact that, you know, my, people my kids' age, like the grannies hang out on Facebook, you know? I'm not so sure I want to hang out on Facebook. So if you could figure out a way to take that data and that network and sort of port it somewhere else, you know, that, that would be a, 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 an interesting challenge um, to, to the growth of, of Facebook. And we'll see, you know, um, I, I would say probably a good position for the time being, but you always want to be watching out for what the next iteration is going to be. Yeah, at the uh, beginning of the talk, you talked about oblique competition and you mentioned iPhone uh, telecom sales have been going up at the same time. Uh, restaurants, cars, et cetera, been going down. Mm -hmm. How do you combat that? Can you give some examples of what do you do if you're a restaurant or car company or one of those things? Okay. So um, when you're thinking about arenas, and this is actually some work I'm doing just at the moment, um, you need to be thinking about what's the pot of addressable resource that I, I want to contest, 
You know, what, what, what is that? And who else is trying to contest that resource? So let me tell a historical story, and then I'll try to bring it to the present. Uh, so back in the day, when Robert Gazzietta was the CEO of Coca-Cola, he had a management meeting, and all of his guys were whining. You know, basically, but ah, the market for flavored sugar water is flat, and we've penetrated every place that we can penetrate, and Pepsi's a pain in the neck, and you know, wine, 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 wine. And he finally stands up and he says, guys, this is ridiculous. The average human being requires 64 fluid ounces of some kind of liquid to stay alive every day. What I want you doing is increasing the proportion of those ounces that's sold by the Coca-Cola company. Now go out and do it. So they went from framing their arena as the soda arena to now saying, wait a minute, it's a much bigger place that we're contesting. So there's a number of different ways you can do this. You can reframe what it is you're doing. You can um, uh, figure out, uh, are you competing to, to solve some kind of need space, right? So here's another example. Um, I have a friend that owns a chain of candy stores. And he said the kids used to get their allowance and they'd come in on Friday or whatever and they'd buy candy. He says, today, they're taking their allowances and putting it into cell phone minutes. So he's gonna to have to come up with something that meets that need for connection or reward or treat or whatever the candy used to represent. By the way, I think this is probably good for our obesity epidemic, right? Um, but you know, he's gonna to have to figure that out, right? So I think when you're thinking about arenas, you wanna be thinking about how do you reframe the place you're competing in, a, in an interesting way. If you would like to, I've got a, a presentation on this, um, which I don't happen to have on this particular stick, but if you wanna email me, I'll, I'll send it to you. And, and it's just a really different way of thinking about what are my metrics, what am I competing for? Um, and you can oftentimes make great um, business by, by reframing. Here's another example. Uh, you all know um, uh, Zippo lighters? Zippo lighters, you know, they're very durable, they're refillable, they come in all kinds of models and sizes and whatnot. And if you thought to yourself, well, what's the competition for a Zippo lighter? All the obvious answers, well, BIC, matches, you know, anti-smoking campaigns. I had an undergraduate once who said, magnifying glass. I said, excuse me? He said, yeah, 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 you make a little pile of twigs and sticks. And have great, great for creativity, right? What? Sorry? He was an engineer. Yeah, uh, must have been. <laughs> he was an engineer, says Mark. Um, imagine to yourself, though, how differently you would behave if you said, no, 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 the major competitor for a Zippo lighter is a man's wallet. Think about that. Purchaser, you know, you actually go look at the purchase act in progress, and you've got someone standing there, man's wallet in one hand, Zippo lighter in the other, one of them is going to become a gift. And the Zippo people for years defined what they were doing, not as competing in the lighter business, but competing in the gift business. Now, if you think about that, that's why they have so many different kinds of Zippos. You can collect them. You know, you can, you, just because you have one doesn't mean you don't need another one because it's a collectible, it's a gift. If you are traveling, uh, in the airport, pay attention now. When you see where the Zippos are positioned in the airport shops, you'll, you don't see them back with the smoking stuff and the tobacco. No, no, no. They're up front. They're right next to the belts and the, the, the ties and the, you know, whatever. Um, and if you go into a department store, same thing. They're competing to be a gift. Now, if you figure that out before your competition does, it can give you a powerful set of advantages because you're, you're competing for a different kind of space. You're not competing in lighters. You're competing to be a gift. Hi. Um, so I'm wondering if you've done any work looking at what this means for the public sector. I mean, we sell to the public sector, and it's just a few moments ago, it sounded like you said avoid it <laughs> at all costs. Uh, but we can't, right? Uh -huh. um, and there, there's clearly a need for a huge transition to take place. Are you doing any research in that area? Do you have any recommendations? <laughs> Um, well, here's the problem with the public sector, uh, among other things, is that they really don't have competition, you know, in, in many cases. They are the monopoly. Um, so the pressure on them to do this really hard work of changing and, and so forth really comes down to almost do you have independently motivated people within the organization who prepared to do that work. And I used to do this. I mean, I, I ran um, information systems for the city of New York for, for about eight, eight years. And we were doing the very first automation of what had been, what had been a paper um, procurement system. Uh, and, and it was really hard because you don't have, you know, in a company, you know, eventually if you don't please your customers, you go out of business and government doesn't have that pressure. So I think you need to use different levers. Um, and I think the more transparent the metrics are, the better. I think if you can create these pockets of people who really believe in the change that you're trying to, to make, that, that can really help. But I'm very concerned 
that I don't think government, I don't think our institutions have caught up with this yet. I think a lot of our institutions are still premised on the assumption that jobs, careers, and things are relatively enduring, and therefore, the way that they're regulated, the way that they're taxed, the way that they're managed, um, are, are premised on this idea that things are going to be there for a long time. And and you, I think you need to build different institutions. If you said, well, com competitive advantages are coming and going, and people's careers are going to be different, I think you would really need to build different institutions. I didn't mean to imply, by the way, that don't work for government. What I meant was if a government has to change a regulation for your business to become successful, that's highly risky. Um, uh, and, and I wouldn't necessarily count on that. Now, some of you will be doing things like healthcare, um, you know, pensions, retirements, financial services. Those sectors are all up for grabs, and there may well be great opportunities there. But I, I wouldn't make a bet on a government ruling your way, is I guess what I would say. Does that help at all? Because it's yeah. tough. I mean, it's really, really it's hard. It's really hard. <laughs> it is. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I agree. I think we have time for what? A couple more? Yeah, one more. Let's do one more. One more. Okay. Uh, Last question, no pressure. Okay. <laughs> so I really liked your point about um, innovation proficiency um, and how you can't expect an engineer to switch over and do QA. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm curious, do you have some practical um, examples of how, how you can bring in innovation and make it sustainable? Sure. Sure. That's just kind of where I live my life. Um, yeah, there's some great examples. One of my favorite is a company called Brambles. Have you ever heard of Brambles? Ah. They are an Australian-based company, and they make very exciting things called pallets. Literally, wooden pallets that you use to ship stuff around. Um, and uh, you talk about an undifferentiated product, but it's about as undifferentiated as you can get. Uh, but what Brambles did, their, their new CEO, who actually came over from Ford, so there's kind of a connection there, but he said, I want to build an innovation uh, proficiency. So we hired a director of innovation. He created a governance process with funding. Uh, they created a screening and vetting process, which involved uh, getting the ideas, training people on how to, how to incubate them, um, teaching them how to do things like um, discovery-driven planning and consumption chain analysis. And they've created now um, a, a rigorous process for how ideas go from being just something that people think of to now they go before the innovation board. It gets the younger people a lot of visibility. And they've been really smart about counteracting some of the barriers to growth. So in a typical large organization, one of the reasons line managers don't want to accept something new is that it may not pay off in the near term. And so that looks bad on their numbers. So what the CEO at Brambles basically says is, you know, if it goes wrong, on me, on me. Corporate takes the hit. Your numbers are untouched. If it goes right, you get all the credit. And so now the line guys are like, bring it on, bring it on, bring more, there's no downside. No downside. So all the typical barriers kind of get removed. Another great example of a company that I think has done a magnificent job of this is John Deere. Um, they literally have all of their executives tasked with specific roles and activities relevant to in innovation. And then they take it very seriously. It's part of their performance evaluation. It's not something that gets, that's dealt with as, oh yeah, well, this is my real job and that's innovation. It, it's, it's considered part of their jobs. So a few other companies that I think are worth looking at, Cognizant has, uh, more, more in your world, has an actual software system that they use to drive and manage innovation. And they find that it supports the innovation <laughs> efforts that they make with their clients. So Cognizant would be to look at. FactSet in Connecticut would be another one really good to look at. So I think there are, there are examples of companies that have gotten a lot of this right, and uh, there's a lot we can learn from them. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.